Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 per year. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember. Use code FEB2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code FEB2022 at checkout. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special edition of our podcast. As you know, every once in a while when we see a book that we think is especially good, that you ought to have, that you ought to buy, then we invite the author to join us on the show. And uh, today I'm especially happy to be able to welcome Wajahat Ali, who is the author of Go Back to Where You Came From, a remarkable and funny and very, very smart book about the business of of being an American today, especially when you come from a slightly different background. Welcome. Thank you, sir. I I appreciate officially being inducted into the deep state. I was waiting since 2016. Well, it's it's the screening process. It takes a long time. It took a long time. I was like the hurdles. Well, you know, you're from California. We have to be careful. (laughs) I do have to say that I like the book very much and, and not least of which because you didn't lose your sense of humor throughout some tough experiences. But then I was reading the summary of the book that was published by your publisher, W.W. Norton. And it says, now middle-aged dad, Ali has become one of the foremost and funniest public intellectuals in America. Have I? And and it it says that. And I was like, shit, that's what I always wanted to be. I would always (laughs) wanted somebody to describe me as a public intellectual, as funny, and as foremost, and you got all of that. That's what happens when you have a good publicist, because uh, I, I wish someone would inform my children that I'm a public intellectual. I would love to lead their thoughts. I'm apparently I'm also a thought leader. David, are you a thought leader? Well, I don't know, because, you know, children are, you know, I don't know how your children are young, right? Seven, five and two. Right. So they probably haven't read the book from cover to cover yet. Yeah, unfortunately, they're slacking. I tried to get them to read a chapter and they got bored after three, three words and they went and saw Encanto instead, which was a very humbling experience. That's what happened. When you get told that you're a public intellectual, the best thing to do is have young children to flatten you immediately or immigrant parents who put you in your place. I got a hot flash for you. I know about that, but I, I got a hot flash for you because 
my daughters are 31 and 32 and I've written 10 books and they've never read any of them. Oh, and they're loving, gosh. they're loving and supportive daughters. Do they think not, you're cool? No, no. Yeah. See, that's no. And you know, and like talk about funny public my older daughter's a writer for the John Oliver show. So she probably thinks like, she's like, I gave that to you. Your, your wit comes from your dad. And you're like, no dad, you were lame. It's on my, no, no, right. She thinks whatever wit I've got comes from her. And you know, anyway, and her, and her sister's a, a shrink, but in any event, that's not, not, not where we are. But um, before we get into the book, I felt compelled to offer my condolences on the loss of the 49ers. Oh, please. Oh, thank you. Uh, the, the pain, the pain. Yeah. But you know what? If I do say so, they overperformed my expectations and the Rams played better. And, and even though America should have rooted for them because they destroyed the Cowboys and anti-vaxxer Aaron Rodgers, I just felt like, you know, America just doesn't recognize a good thing when, they, when it has. Well, it's true. But I was I was thinking and we will get to your book right right after this. But I was I was hoping that the performance of your of your warriors oh. was offsetting the disappointment from your 49ers. The Warriors, the fact that uh, they went to San Antonio, came back 17 without Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, Clay Thompson, Andre. Literally, their bench showed up and then some. It was like the bench and then the bench of the bench went to San Antonio and beat San Antonio Spurs in the final five seconds. And that was like, you know what? That's why you should always have hope in life. Exactly. Well, that spirit infuses your book, which is really the story of growing up in the United States as the child of Pakistani immigrants. And uh, I mean, my, my father is an immigrant from Austria, so mm. it's a slightly, slightly different and slightly similar experience. When you were talking about parents never approving, I remember when I became Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce in the Clinton administration, I called up my parents and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm about to be the Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce. And my father's response was, how much does that pay? Um, <laughs> or, or I, was, I was surprised he didn't say, how, why, why are you the undersecretary? Yeah, well, that... Um, why aren't you the secretary? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that when you came home with an A minus, was that the response? Oh, yeah, of course. It's like, it's like well, it's not bad. But where's the <laughs> <Right>. A? <laughs> yeah, where did you go wrong? Yeah. Where did we go wrong? Where do we go wrong? Where do we grow on to have such failures as children? Yeah. But, you know, I, I, you, it's, it's because, you know, they, they come to this country and like you wrote very beautifully about your father in this uh, Daily Beast piece. I remember it was last year. It was a very lovely essay that you wrote. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they come to this country and they're like, I had to schlep and, you know, forfeit my dreams and, and suffer so you could become successful. And what the hell? You became a deputy undersecretary and then yeah. you became an English major. Which had, what? I was very lucky that my parents, even though, you know, they had that traditional South Asian stereotype, they were also very radical in that they did support my career. I was very lucky. I also made the mistake that you did, although you did it accidentally, which is I spent the first chunk of my career in the theater. Although oh. as, as a director, I know you did it as a playwright. And I'm that's, sorry. You know, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, they were, they were horrified, absolutely horrified. But Needless to say, both of both of us, you and I, have followed the natural path from spending time in the theater to being, you know, political commentators with columns on the Daily Beast. It's that, totally normal. That, that yeah. was the checklist of immigrant success. When your father came from Austria, he goes, I will have a son. Yeah. And then he will go and become a director in theater. 
and then become a political commentator with a, and a podcast host and a communist. This is the American dream, is that, what your Austrian that, father and my Pakistani parents thought. That exactly. Now there. You know what though? I think I think that's it. You you're very lucky though. What I found out, and I'm sure you know this as well. You know, I also am a recovering attorney, and there's so many lawyers, and there's so many people in our fields who secretly want to become a writer or want to do theater or want to be opera singers. And then they saw me, you know, after I graduated law school, I went and pre- premiered my play and all my law professors were like, watch, don't become a lawyer. I'm like, was I that bad of a law student? They're like, no, no, just escape. You can make it. We want to, you know, we live vicariously through you. And then the, and then the funny thing is we took that route and went back into this wonky world of commentary and politics. Yeah. Well, by the way, my wife is an opera singer and so there you go. And she's teaching diplomacy uh, at the Kennedy School right now. So is, is she <laughs> also a child of immigrants? Yes. Yes. There two, you go. See, she, she had to have two, it's always, a, it's a always Bulgarian, insurance insurance yeah, of Bulgarian and a Mexican immigrant. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, she, she came in just as an op. See, that's the thing is you, you always have to like you have to do it harder, better, faster, stronger as a child of immigrants or as an immigrant. You have to daft punk it. So it's not enough just to be the opera singer or the theater director. Then someone comes into your ear. Usually it's your mom and dad and says, but beta, what about the insurance and stability? And you're like, oh, crap, stability. So they're like, and then you're like, all right, I'll just go become a deputy undersecretary of commerce, I guess. And I'm like, all right, yeah, no, right, right, right. No, exactly. And at each step, you know, every step, like, you know, with my books, but I remember writing my first book, the, my parents would be like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? And then I was like, yeah, I'm done. And it's published. And I got a good review in the New York Times. And they're like, yeah, we can't make it to the book party. I was like, fuck, what can I do? <laughs> you can become a doctor. That's yeah. why we left Austria. Yeah, like the train, exactly. The train left. They're like, well, get back on the train, David. <laughs> do you have do you have right. do you have another sibling who made it? That's usually what happens. I found out it's like if you have another sibling who becomes a doctor, then that's like the win. And then the other one can be the freak, like a theater director. But the problem with me is I'm the only child. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I always take some comfort from the situation, at least that, you know, is reported in the Bible that, you know, Jesus had a brother. And, you know, you can imagine, James, I think was his name, and you can imagine how tough it was on him. Look at your brother. (laughs) He's the savior of mankind. What have you done, James? What have you done lately, James? (laughs) Exactly. It's just, it's very hard to to live up to your your siblings and your parents' expectations. James, like, I I made this, I made this bench. Yeah, exactly. The bench that you're sitting on, the bench that you're sitting on using to mock me, I made that. Yeah, exactly. And that will last for anyway. The story, I mean, your story begins with being a kid, but but it starts to take this interesting turn after 9-11 and you end up writing this play, which I don't think was really your intention. Talk a little bit about that so that people get a, a sense of the, the the flavor of what we're talking about. So, so you know, 9-11 happens. I'm a 20-year-old undeclared senior at UC Berkeley because as, you know, it flows in naturally to the conversation. You know, growing up as a child of immigrants, oftentimes, especially a child of Pakistani or Asian immigrants, you're given this holy trinity, um, which I think even Jewish immigrants know. Like doctor is number one, engineer is number two, and dubious businessman who somehow makes a lot of money and drives a Honda or a BMW is number three. And then the fourth is failure. That's it. Failure. Yeah. So in the back of my mind, like I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller, but you can never vocalize it because back in the day growing up, right? Like there was just, there weren't that many people out there who were doing it, right? There just weren't, there weren't even many brown people on TV, believe it or not, or anchors forget, like nothing. It was just like Fareed Zakaria. Even if you listen to Fareed Zakaria, he says after 9-11, like I was the only brown Muslimy guy in Newsweek. And they kind of said, Fareed, 
talk about the Muslim world. He goes, I'm not even practicing. They're like, go ahead, Fareed. And so I was the 20 year old student at UC Berkeley trying to figure out what to do. And the two towers fell. And I was a member of the Muslim Student Association. And I always, you know, you had, you had to have some dark humor in life. You know, Donald Trump and others say Muslims knew about 9-11 or like, you know, they cheered all these conspiracy theories. And I always joke, if I had known about 9-11, I would have joined the Indian Student Association instead and, you know, dated some cute girls and learned how to do bhangra. But FML, as the kids say, I joined the Muslim Student Association. I was a board member. The two towers fell. My frigging email was on the website of the Muslim Student Association. So overnight, who gets all the hate mail? Who gets accused of, of being a terrorist and a terrorist sympathizer? Who gets all the media requests? It was me. There was no training, David. No one like, guided us. There was no mentorship. We're just trying to figure out what the hell to do. And if, if, we, if people are, are our age and you're not a young buck, you remember this country lost its damn mind after 9-11. We changed the name of French fries to Freedom Fries. We canceled Susan Sontag. <laughs> you know, people forget that. We took tractors over the CDs of Dixie Chicks, who are like the whitest, nicest women on earth, for the most benign comment. So in this climate, I was also in a short story writing class of Ishmael Reed, MacArthur genius winner poet, Ishmael Reed. And Ishmael Reed's a black man, and he told me to come meet him after class one day. I was a short story writing class, and he said, listen, I think dialogue and characters are a real strong point for you. Don't waste your time in short stories. You should write me a play. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you ever read Fences or Death of a Salesman or Long Day's Journey in the Night? You know, I'm like, yes. Write me a play like that. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, like a traditional. Like, yeah. like Long Day's Journey in the Night. Yeah, right, Nobel right, like Prize a, winning. Classic Eugene ethnic right. drama. Right. And, you know, right. he said something interesting. He said, you know, this is now seen as a staple of American drama. But Eugene O'Neill was an ethnic writer, Irish Catholic. Arthur Miller was an ethnic writer, you know, Jewish American. Lorraine Hansbury, Fences, you know, ethnic writers. He says all writers in America are ethnic. He goes, and I'm looking at the news and I'm telling you as a black man that Muslims are going to get hazed for the next 10 years. And he says, as a black man for 400 years, you know, this is a famous quote of Ishmael Reed that I've taken to heart. He says, writing is a fighting. Writing is a fighting, right? And he said, we have fought back through art and culture. Even Jews have, as you're literally being erased. As yeah. I'm speaking right now, Mouse, Tony Morrison, this is happening, ladies and gentlemen. So he says, you have to keep writing. Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg. No, no, Whoopi I'm Goldberg. <laughs> I'm just making a joke. Please do not respond to my Whoopi Goldberg joke. Go uh, yeah. Yeah. The view. Why did you take the view from us? And so, and so he says, write me a story about an American family, a kitchen drama, but from the lens of what's your family again? Like Pakistani Muslim. Yeah. Write me that. Give me 20 pages or you'll fail. Okay. I'll see you in two months. I'm like, what? And so that became the genesis. I started writing it at the age of 21 of my play, Domestic Crusaders, and then I finished it two years later. And then Ishmael came on as a producer. His partner, Carlo Blank, came on as the director. We did it ourselves. And I, I talk about it in a very humorous way, which is exactly how it happened, is that we, we transformed our local Pakistani restaurant into a dinner theater experience. People made fun of me. You know how it is. You're in theater. They mock you. They say, what's the point? And then I did it. I gave them a five-course buffet meal, and they gave it a standing ovation. And then we did it ourselves because I got terrible notes. An advice from the local gatekeepers that no one would care about an ethnic story. So I'm like, all right, I won't wait. I'll just do it, it myself. Kind of, it was like the first Muslim American take on post 9-11, right? It was one of the first major ones that got major acclaim, correct. And, and, and so back in the day, this was 2004, not 2005, you have to realize the notes that I got, David, were the mainstream will not relate to this ethnic play. Translation, white people are terrified of darkies. Remove the Urdu, remove the Arabic, take away the biryani, make it palatable. One note I got, which was awesome. 
it was this Hollywood producer who loved the play and he wanted to bring it to LA. And he's like, have you thought about casting? And I said, sure, give me your names. He goes, Salman, the Pakistani immigrant father. Who do you think? I'm like, who do you think? He goes, Ted Danson. <laughs> I'm like, from <laughs> Cheers? I'm like, Ted Danson. Yeah. My response was yours. I started laughing on the phone and he's dead serious. And I'm like, wait, you're serious? He goes, America loves Ted Danson. And so the, the, the journey of the play took friggin' eight years. I, I'm really proud of myself that we were stubborn. We stuck to our roots. And finally, we premiered it at the New Rican Poets Cafe off Broadway in New York on, in 2009. We did a five-week run. I raised all the funds myself. And the play was a hit. And then Toni Morrison came and saw the last showing of the play. And beforehand, we ate coffee. And, and had cake at the French cafe next door. And she kept telling Wanda Sykes sex jokes. And I'll never forget that. It was me, Ishmael Reed, and Toni Morrison. Yeah, there were pictures, right? I yeah. saw pictures. There's actually you. a photo. I didn't make this up. Yeah, right. There, there, there are photos of you together. And I bet Ted Danson was great in the role. Yeah, Ted crushed it. Crushed it. <laughs> he even yeah. had his toupee on. And, you know, for some reason, he was in a bar. And he was the only one drinking in this Muslim family. It was weird. And we kept calling him <laughs> Sam. But it worked. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, there was it, it's important on several levels. But you know, one of the things that I've I found about this book, which is super engaging, as anybody listening to you can can gather, as anybody who reads your stuff at the Daily Beast or elsewhere can gather or watches you on TV. But you know, it gets to something much heavier and something that hasn't left. You know, Ishmael Reed was wrong. You know, that people aren't picking on Muslims for ten years. It's, it's nonstop, right? Non-stop. And, you know, you end up with Trump and Muslim bans. And, and to this day, if anything, the overt racism in the United States to people of any color at all has grown. And in fact, I think it's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, by 2043, the United States is going to be what we once thought of as a minority, minority majority country. A huge portion of those will be Asians, Latinos, and also African-Americans. And the sort of formerly, the former majority is terrified. They're terrified of what Mm. this means for the country and for the identity. And, And so the struggle that you have and that you report doesn't seem like it's gonna end anytime soon. No, no. Um, the question I've got is how has it morphed over the course of your adult life? How is it different today than it was even 20 years ago? That's a good question. I tried in the book uh, through telling this culturally specific story to also chart the story of America and connect the dots, especially over the last 20 years, especially in the post-war on terror, right? And you can't get to Trump without the war on terror. You can't get to Trump's election without the hazing of Muslims and this thing called Islam. It's connected. And, you know, uh, Spencer Ackerman does this macro level analysis of it in his excellent book, Reign of Terror. And I tried to do, make it more personal. And we just happened to be in conversation. It was a Muslim, a Jew and a black woman at a nation synagogue, Sixth and I talking about the war on terror and the book, which I thought was just a exquisite chef's kiss to America. And the Nazis were marching right now. That was last week. And, and the way it's, it has morphed is, is the following. Some people say to me, I was on another podcast and I'm like, but Wajad. Muslims are just crushing it right now. It's so good to be a Muslim. Look, you got Ilhan Omar now and you got Rashida Tlaib and you got Miss Marvel. And, you know, there's more Muslim representation and people are reaching out. I'm like, sure, that's right. But if George W. Bush, who you and I would probably agree that before Trump, we'd think that was the worst president of our lifetime, was to run for Republican president in 2024, 
his own party would reject him for being a Muslim lover. And people forget that George W. Bush stepped inside a mosque. People forget that George W. Bush courted the Muslim vote. People forget that George W. Bush, after 9-11, at the very least, said two really good speeches where he said Islam means peace. Muslims are, are uh, you know, citizens and neighbors. I feel terrible that Muslim women feel uh, terrified. You are not our enemy, right? Then the policies, of course, were terrible. But he did say that, David, right? Now you got Donald Trump. I think Islam hates us. Like, what? We need a Muslim man. And then you got Lauren Bubart, who, you know, just openly does the most hateful Islamophobic lie against Ilhan Omar. No condemnation. You got Paul Gosar, who pals around with Nick Fuentes, a straight up anti-Semitic white nationalist, speaks at his keynote conference. Nada. You know, Donald Trump doing these racist dog whistles openly, nothing. And so what we're witnessing, in my opinion, is the death rattle of white supremacy, which has transformed into a death march precisely based on the demographic change that you mentioned. And I'm not surprised at all that the white supremacist anti-Semitic replacement theory, it came from the swamps of white supremacists, ladies and gentlemen, is now a mainstream talking point of the GOP parroted almost daily on Tucker Carlson's show word for word. And what people forget is, you know, they say, ah, who cares? They're just going after the Mexicans. I don't have to worry about it. Who cares? They're, they're going after them darky Muslims. Who cares? What they don't understand is bigots aren't nuanced, David. If you step back and really research this, this is what the replacement theory says. Blacks, Muslims, Mexicans, and undocumented are being used by the Jews the global cabal of the brilliant Jews to weaken Western civilization. On behalf of all the Jews, I thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you, and, and the reason for this is also funny. There's no way that the darkies, the blacks, the Muslims are smarter than us. There's no way that they can be better than us. How did this happen? How did they get so far ahead? Ah, the Jews. That's, um, that's literally the anti-Semitism at play. And so we're at a place right now where, yeah, sure, I'm talking to you. You have a podcast. I have a book. And people say, see, Wajat, you made it. Why are you complaining? Literally, someone said this on Twitter. Why are you complaining? You have a book released. I'm like, yeah, wonderful. I have a book released. And there's Fareed Zakaria and Hassan Minaj and Miss Marvel and Kamala Khan. And you have Nazis marching on the street. And you have the January 6th violent insurrection. And now you have the replacement theory yeah, but also, literally it, on TV. It's also, you know, you're saying, oh, yeah, you have Rashida Tlaib and all year. You have Ilan Omar. and. It's not so great to be Ilan Omar. It's not so great to be Rashida Tlaib. They're getting shit day in and day out. They're getting death, death threats. threats. They're getting death threats that are supported by other members of Congress. They're square in the crosshairs. And I'm sure it's true. I know Freed a bit. I don't know what his deal is, but I bet he gets it. I bet Mehdi Hassan. Oh, yeah. Hate gets me every day. Day in and day out. and. As I said, on behalf of all the Jews, I thank you for thinking that we're in control of all of this. Yeah, um, I, I just want to rent the laser. I want to rent the laser after uh, during well, Sabbath. I'll tell you, by the way, I, I uh, this is not something that's widely known, although it will be wider known after I say this. But I have a weird habit of like I try I, I buy domain names whenever I think of something that I think is a clever. clever. Domain oh, name, good. Smart. You know, I buy it because then I think, well, someday I'll do something with it. And one of the ones I thought that I, I wanted to know who owned it and that I bought ultimately was worldjewishconspiracy.com. Oh, you have it. Good for yeah. you. And I, well, I thought you could put it on yarmulkes, you could put it on t-shirts. It would be a nice sort of party favors for bar mitzvahs and things. But the point is, Charlottesville, they were marching and chanting, the Jews will not replace us. 
That's right. And and it's sort of any other in the sense of the other. There you go. Is essentially being targeted. And it all seems like a spasm to me. It seems like, you know, the death rattle yeah. of dying orders. And in that respect, it kind of resonates a little bit with Vladimir Putin trying to restore, you know, Russian glory Russia to a Soviet stature that it will never gain again. Ever. And, and, and it's very it's very similar because, you know, you know this, you brought Putin, Putin's trauma. You know, the worst thing that happened, and he mentioned this, is that the fact that in his lifetime, the Soviet Union collapsed. And for him, the glory is to return to this mythical romantic place where they were on the top. And if you look at America and look at white nationalists, white supremacists, this romantic nostalgia view of America of the 50s, where the white men was at top and there was only like two genders and you didn't have to learn pronouns and black people knew their place. And if only we could get back to that place, you know, because when they say when, when was America great, the research shows that everyone says the 50s. Leave it to Beaver, black and white. Beautiful, pristine, right? And you and you see the and you see and you see Russia trying to do the same, and then implement its ethno-religious nationalism as like you know as a nice little sideshow there as well. Right, we were great at the height of the Cold War, well, in the last decade of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. you know, before it had all gone away. But you know, that's why you know Trump could actually go out and embrace this idea of preserving Confederate statues. We are going to sort of cling to the notion that there was virtue in the South going to war for one reason and one reason only, which is to maintain the institution of slavery. Well, it also shows the freak out over 1619, right? It shows the freak out over the book bans. Is when critical, critical race theory today, you know, and, and, and people, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it today because if you take critical race theory and extend it to its natural conclusion, then you have to cancel the month of February because it's Black History Month. And honestly, living in Mm. the Northeast, I wouldn't mind seeing February go, but not (laughs) for that reason. But you know what? Maybe they could give a longer month to Black History Month. Like they gave it the shortest month. So maybe we could, you know, maybe we can cancel Black History Month in in, in, uh, February and give them one of the summer months where we can have a party. Yeah, give them a 31 day month. Yeah. In the summer. You know, I mean, I, I think a good it, summer month. Yeah, no, no. But I think you're absolutely right. The idea that black history month gets the shortest month. It's, it's like so exquisite. It's, inherently it's, just, racist. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, we'll give you the shortest month. They're like, thank you. It's such a great microcosm of the black experience. Like you'll get it, but you won't get all of it and, and be grateful. And that's the thing. Just be grateful for it. The be grateful that we actually acknowledged you. And I think that's what we're dealing with right now is if, you know, especially with me growing up, the quote unquote model minority is a toxic myth is it's a Faustian bargain in exchange for security in exchange for us tolerating you. The Faustian bargain says that you have to be invisible and silent and you just take it and nod your head and smile and never complain. Well, yeah. I mean, and that, well, I mean, that is, that is the deal. And, and, and a lot of immigrants, our parents sort of said, Okay, we'll okay. find a way to make it work. Fine. We'll nod our head. We'll get the good degree. We'll get the good credit. We'll work harder than everyone. We'll get less money, but we'll be happy. We'll smile our shiny teeth. And internally, we'll have anxiety and depression, but we won't share it because that's weakness. And we'll just smile. And what will people say? That's all that matters. What will people say? What will our community say? What will white America say? And so we'll work hard. And, and son, don't rock the boat. Be safe. 
and, and, and you know, keep quiet and, and pay your taxes and this country then will accept you. The other thing about this, and this is kind of, you know, I mean, I'm a foreign policy guy at, at heart because when you start out in the theater, that's one of the options you've got available to you later on in life. But is if you look at the world today, it's not just the U.S., but the backlash against Muslims is grotesque worldwide, yeah. whether it's ethno-nationalists in Europe, whether it's the government of Israel, whether it's Putin, or in two particularly egregious cases, whether it's the Modi government in India, which is ethno-nationalist and singling out and, and treating Muslims abys abysmally, or it's the Chinese government in Xinjiang province with mm. the Uyghurs. So this is a global phenomenon, and you're able to laugh a little bit more about it in the U.S. because things have turned out pretty well for you, and there is still some opportunity here. But there are other parts of the world where, you know, it's genocide. That's the fear, is that we're seeing what's happening in Myanmar. We're seeing what's happening in, in, in yeah, China. Myanmar is another yeah, example. That's genocide. It's Sri Lanka, India, which is just tilting towards fascism. I'm not tilting, moving rapidly know, towards yeah. Hindu nationalism. It's, it's horrific, right? And this, every, all our warnings were, you know, went unheeded. We're seeing Hungary, where, and I was in Poland a few years ago, where I met some Polish Jewish scholars that were laughing. There's like 10 Muslims here, and they've made you into the invaders, right? The same conspiracy theory that Trump used the, in 2018. I have to tell you, the siege of Vienna left scars <laughs> in Europe, and they're still not over it. Yeah, 400 years later, yeah. like, oh, my God, you know, but in, in a strange way, it did, because look how close they came. They came to the gates and we repelled them. And if you listen to white nationalists and Islamophobes, they use that. They use that romantic marker of the past that the hordes came to the gate and we stopped them and we saved Western civilization. Well, you know, we talk a lot about Ukraine and say, well, this could become the largest land war in Europe since the Second World War. But the last land war in Europe was one by Serbs trying to exterminate Muslims. And people forget that. People forget that the whiteness did not save Bosnians. The Muslims made them the other. And I've gone to Bosnia and you've gone to Bosnia and you see that you see you just it's a beautiful country and you go to Sarajevo and you just walk around and then you just see graveyards. Right there to your left you see graveyards and then it's a, it's a it's a beautiful a city that is haunted. There's like there there's a pallor over that that place. And, and you know another thing I felt when I was in Bosnia, I don't know if you if you felt this you always feel like that tinderbox is about to be lit. I felt like it's not like those demons aren't dead, David. But I think that's the point here. When you walk down the street, I, I don't know if you feel this, but tell me if mm. you feel it. You walk down the street and you go into a restaurant, particularly in some parts of the United States. There's always the possibility that there's some asshole, mega racist there who's going to call you out, who's going to confront you, who's going to say nasty things to you, mm. who's going to say nasty things to your kids. And maybe by 2045, this won't be the so. But between now and 2045, the formative years of the lives of your kids, it's going to be true every day. This is the reality. And, and for those who are listening, let me just give you an insight how it is sometimes to be a person of color, a Muslim living in this day and age. The type of conversations that we have, I'll give you one that we never had growing up. I have friends who were born and raised in this country who casually had this conversation with us. Ah, we're having a kid and we're thinking about you know, what name we should give our kid and we're thinking about what name we can give the kid 
that Americans would like that that won't, you know, lead them to be them being targeted or bullied. Adam, you know, they'll probably call him Adam. Layla, they like Layla. Sophia, you know, it's Muslim names, but at the same time, uh, Americans will like it. And I said, hold on a second. You realize what's happening? We're self-policing our children's names for their safety. I never had that. My name's freaking Wajahat. My parents didn't give an F. <laughs> They're like, whatever. But, you know, people are self-policing their kids' names to quote unquote blend in. The casual conversation that I have with people who live in the suburbs in Virginia is, yo, you don't have a gun yet, Wajahat? I got my gun in 2016. We got to go to the gun range because you never know. They're going to come after us. My father, who came to this country in 66, you know, sober person. My mom and my dad have gone through a lot in life. They would live through the war on terror. Never, ever during the George W. Bush years does my father ever say, we got to get out. During the last four years, several times he said, Wajahat, if this country turns on us, where are my grandkids going to go? So he's been researching like countries. And I talked to like a Jewish friend of mine whose uh, parents were Jewish refugees to this country. It's not just Muslims. They're like, what's a safe country? I had, a, I had this conversation yesterday at the kebab restaurant where the Pakistani owner was like, yo, what's a safe place? And I went through the list. I'm like, people think Canada, but Canada is going to have its moment and it's having its moment right now. Uh, Europe, I would avoid. The three countries I came up with were Portugal, which had its fascist moment. So maybe like Portugal is like, oh, that didn't work out. So maybe for 20 years, David, you and me can live the rest of our lives in Portugal. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand, they have hobbits. So New Zealand, they have like halal lamb. And so we could go to the end of the earth, maybe in New Zealand. Uh, and Iceland seems to be like a nice place, but it's really expensive. So apparently yeah, but, New but I gotta Zealand, say the, Scand the Scandinavian countries are not so welcoming also to Muslims. No, no, no. I, I've got, I went to Norway and you feel it. Once there's more color there, that's when that Norway experiment starts to fall apart. Well, and Brevik, you know, the, who just got recommitted to prison. That was his bone to pick, right? I mean... Bre yeah, Bre Breivik wanted to punish Europe for embracing multiculturalism, and he wanted to send a warning to Europe, and he was a massive Islamophobe and specifically hated the Muslim foreigners who were invading his land, and that's why he killed 76 people. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, you know, my, my dad escaped the Nazis, came to the United States, but, you know, my dad was six foot two and, and blondish. My mother grew up in Park Avenue, and her father was a doctor. And my brother and I were just sweet little kids growing up in suburban New Jersey. He, again, he was blonde and I, you know, and, and we were grown up on a little nice street in New Jersey. But I'll tell you what happened with more regularity than you would think is we would wake up in the morning and somebody had drawn a swastika on the driveway. Wow. You know, wow. you know, and, you know, for my Holocaust survivor father, that was pretty shocking. But it doesn't stop because people it's not just, you know, you know, people who are standing out one reason or another, although, you know, the people who dress differently, you know, get punished for it. People are looking all the time. Are you different? Mm -hmm. How are you different? Do you threaten me? How do you threaten me? And it's a deep rooted part of our culture. And there are so many protections and safe spaces for racism to grow. That's right. So many Petri dishes for it. But I have to say, and I'm a little older than you, but I have to say at this point in my life, it's only gotten worse. Yeah, it's gone worse. But, you and, know. And, and in my adult life, it's gone worse. We warned about it. Many writers of color called it out in 2016, 2015. We were ignored, David. I mentioned that in the book. We talked about Trump's racism. I tried to connect the dots. I remember I was in D.C. 
And uh, there, there was, I was invited to a meeting. It was like an Aspen meeting and it was off the record. And in 2015, because of my research on the anti-Muslim bigotry, the, the Islamophobia industry in America, and how it was connected also to Europe, I, I warned about the rise of white nationalist movements. I said, we're not paying attention to this. And I said how this is going to get mainstreamed and it's part and parcel of the conservative movement. And to me, because I spent so much time reading about it and studying about it, I thought it was common sense. But to a lot of these folks who, you, you know them, very influential, they turned around and said, I think you might be onto something. And that's when I'm like, we're screwed. And the reason why I thought we were screwed is like, we just, we're not recognizing the threat. We're not acknowledging it. We're not talking about it. And, you know, you saw the whitewashing, David, economic anxiety. I'm like, it's not economic anxiety. Trust me, it's cultural and racial anxiety. And now then all the data and studies came out and they showed the primary, not the exclusive, the primary motor motivation of Trump voters was this feeling of cultural anxiety that they were being replaced specifically by the blacks and the women and the Jews, and they were losing their America of their grandfather, right? And that's very powerful. And now you see Donald Trump, Bubart, Gosar. I mean, can you imagine a Gosar in 2015? I mean, we had a Stephen King, not the author, Stephen King from Iowa, the first bigot. And then three years ago, just to show you how things have changed in three years, Steve King was the original Paul Gosar, the original white nationalist. Mitch McConnell was forced to finally condemn him and he was stripped of his committees. Steve King's probably sitting at home. He's like, yo, I'm the originator. I'm the OG. Bring me back. I could go on and on, and we should just continue the conversation in some subsequent podcast because this is so fascinating. But just in the, in, the, in the last couple of minutes we've got here, let's acknowledge that some of those folks at that Aspen conference, some of the people that we hang out with in the various worlds we live in, and I lived in Alexandria for a long time, they contribute to this in pernicious ways. Oh, yeah. And it ranges from, you know, dean of geopolitical analyst Samuel Huntington writing about the clash of civilizations. Mm. And actually, when I was editor or before, actually, it was a little before I was editor of foreign policy, he wrote a big, long article about the threat posed by the external culture to Mm -hmm. American culture. And it was intellectually acceptable. And then, of course, and let's just say this real quietly, because I, I, I I don't want to you know, guess at what your political views are, but I support the Biden administration because I think if you don't, democracy is in peril in the United States. And that's a separate separate issue. But even the Biden administration is tiptoeing around immigration issues. Oh, of course. Because they know that they would be vulnerable if they were to embrace, and, and here's the shocker, the kind of wildly radical, humane immigration policies of George W. Bush. <laughs> you said it, and I agree. I was telling someone yesterday, that they asked me about immigration, like, which, when will immigration happen? I'm like, never. They're going to punt this because it exposes them, and they're going to cater to white anxiety and grievance, and they have more, no counter to right-wing more, attacks. More people were deported in the first four years of the Obama administration than in all eight years of the Bush administration. Bush advanced the idea of immigration reform. I'm not whitewashing Bush. He was a catastrophe, as you indicated yeah. earlier. But the, but the point is, politically vulnerable groups, liberals and others who should be fighting the battle on this, won't because they don't think they can 
win or that they would be damaged too heavily? Absolutely. And, and the damage they believe is they cannot counter the right wing bad faith messaging that will traffic on white racial anxiety and the dog whistles. And that's why you see the punt on immigration reform. You see the punt on police reform. You saw the punt forever on voting rights reform until it was too late and affects all of us and U.S. democracy. And with the Aspen, one thing I'll to bring it full circle in the interest of time, that's where you and I first met several years ago. And I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2017. And you were on a panel, you were moderating a panel with Julia Yaffe, who's a friend of mine, Atreus, and one other dude. And you and Julia were the only clear-eyed folks who were recognizing the threats. And you were surprised by some of the answers of Patrice and this other dude, who I think were angling for jobs at the time. And like half the oh, audience. Yeah. yeah, remember that, but right? Petraeus, Petraeus on that panel was so appalling. And I had known him and interviewed him for books and had lunch with And I thought, oh, this is a kind of a smart guy, you know, graduate school at Princeton, blah, blah, blah. He, he seemed like I was smart. And he was just publicly kissing Trump's ass yep. and saying horrible shit. And I remember and I, I was in the audience. Julia and I were flabbergasted. I, just, you got, you, I saw it. Even as a mother, you're like, what? You're like, no, no, I tried to call. I tried to call him out on it. But 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 yeah, I, I no, I, re, I remember that vividly. But, you know, I guess, you know, that's that's the, the, the sort of the punchline here. And that is. The problem does not just exist in the minds of racists and xenophobes. The problem exists because of the lack of resolve, hesitation, weakness of people who know better. That's right. It's the flabby, moderate majority that chooses apathy and and, and outsources the work to this mythical institution or guardrails that they think will come and save us or this neutered MLK quote that the, the moral arc bends towards justice. I'm like, nope, not you got to bend it. You got to bend it towards justice. Well, you know, people sometimes talk about the banality of evil. But when I think about the Holocaust or I think about this, I think of the evil of banality, mm. of the fact that things that, you know, become commonplace and are generally accepted as not an immediate threat to the general public. So they don't do anything about That's it, right. end up enabling the horrific. That's right. And, you know, it wasn't that every German was terrible. It was that most Germans didn't care to stop it. And it's not that, you know, all Americans are racist, but a lot of the Americans who aren't racist aren't willing to fight with the ones who are and stand up for, for what's right. I appreciate the fact that you and others, you know, you're warning. We need more people to warn. And you have a stature and also, you know, it's sometimes the messenger matters. And I'm telling you as a person of color, as a Muslim, you know, we've talked about the Islamophobia. I'll say certain things. I'll say a certain message. And I'm immediately dismissed for being reactionary and emotional. Okay. Muslim, whatever, brown guy. But if you say it, David, with your bona fides and, and, and your, your, your stature and your identity, then it's like, oh, David Rothkopf is saying it. And then when some conservatives say, right, like that, there was an article that came out a couple months ago in the Washington Post that trended. And I'm forgetting, it was like a neocon guy. I'm forgetting who, I'm just, is Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan did this piece in the uh, Washington Post where he talked about democracy under threat. Pretty much everything you've been saying for five years and I've been saying. And then America's like, oh, look at this. I was pissed off because when that article came out and everybody's like, oh my God, 
look at what do you guys saying. know that democracy is under threat? I was like, <laughs> holy shit, you know, you know, what am I chopped liver? But yeah, but the but the, but the reality is, you're, you, you know, you're nice to say what you're saying. I think you have plenty of stature. And I think books like the book you have written make a huge difference. And they make a difference not only because the perspective is right and smart, but also because the book is great. It's accessible. It's personal. And so it's not abstraction or mm. polemic. And no, you know, I strongly encourage our listeners to go out and buy, go back to where it came from. And I encourage them to read it because, you know, it's good for them. But it's like, you know, certs. It's a breath mint and it's a candy mint. It tastes good too. It's something that you will enjoy reading from beginning to end uh, and you'll be better off for it. So I appreciate I, that. I, Thank you. No, no. It's a great achievement and something that you should be proud of. And, you know, your family should be proud of it too. You know, like maybe your kids will never read it, but they should be proud of it. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you back to have further conversations of many sorts. But for now, go back to where you came from is the book. We encourage everybody to go out and buy it wherever you buy fine books or audiobooks or ebooks or whatever version. I assume it's in all those versions out there. It is. So, you know, you don't even have to turn the pages or run the risk of paper cuts and get it. You'll be better off for it. And for now, let me thank you, Watch a Hut, and thank everybody for listening. And if you, Want to know more about what we've got coming up? Go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, click on membership. And we've got more tomorrow on the plight of our democracy and the worsening plight of uh, uh, its primary enemy at the moment. And that's Donald Trump. So join us for that. And we'll be back again soon. In the meantime, try to take care of yourselves out there. There's still plenty of COVID going around. Bye-bye for now.